everyone so this episode is really kind of niche we talk a lot about fan fiction history from like the 70s up into the present and a lot about like 90s syndicated television so like it's niche so if that's not your thing you can totally wait to the ep next episode if that is your thing or if you're just curious about it then please continue but kind of wanted to let you know be prepared we kind of you know we talk about things like La Femme Nikita and go down a forever night rabbit hole. It just wanders, meanders, but still fun. So just get ready. But I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Introspectional. I am super, super excited for this episode because today we are talking about basically the history of fan fiction. Now, if you've been around since last season, that fan fiction is something that I love and adore. But what's really interesting about this particular written form of expression is that it actually has a really long history. And if you include like the works of Shakespeare, since he did use previous texts, or like Paradise Lost, which is essentially Bible fan fiction, it goes a lot longer than most people think it does. But that being said, I am also super excited to have this guest with me today. I have Tara O'Shea. And Tara, can you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and a little about your area of expertise? My area of expertise is actually I'm a graphic designer, but when I was a kid, I wanted to write and I wanted to draw comics. And that was my first experience of the idea of a shared world mm -hmm. where the people who created uh, intellectual property were not necessarily the people who were still writing it, where you would have hundreds of different writers and artists working on the same character over a period of 30, 40 years. And that sort of prepared me for a lifelong love of storytelling. When you're looking at the history of fan fiction, to me, you look at stories that are told and retold, going all the way back to King Arthur, going all the way back to the kinds of foundational stories that appear in every culture. There is a Beauty and the Beast story in almost every culture, whether it's Cupid and Psyche or the actual French fairy tale, or I recently found out there's a Scandinavian version I'd never heard of before. And I was reading through it and I'm like, this is amazing. And I think as human beings, we are just driven to tell and retell and put our own spin on stories. And so the idea of transformative works is natural to us. The idea of copyright is unnatural, but I like authors being able to feed themselves and put their kids through college. I do not like corporations extending copyright for 100 years after the death of the author, which thankfully organizations like the OTW have really made a case testifying before Senates and things to try to block harmful legislation like that. Sherlock Holmes fans were great big nerds and wrote fan fiction and exchanged them. So it's been going on probably since cave drawings first person picked up a sharpened stick with charcoal and sketched something on the wall and somebody else went I'm going to continue this story and I'm thinking about just narrative storytelling because if you're talking about pictographs of people telling the stories of whether it's the hunt or the day-to-day -day life that's another medium but also if people are just telling stories of how it went. If I am telling you the story about how I went and, and hunted a deer, it's a lot more exciting if I say, and it was huge, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then there was a bear. That's a lot more exciting than I saw this deer and I was like laying down on the grass for two days and then I finally got it. And those stories, you would have people in every tradition who would travel from town to town and everyone would get together and be like, okay, so what's the story that you heard in the last town? What's the gossip? What's going on? And that's, you know, how we ended up with oral traditions that some of them, thank God, survived as oral traditions and were collected. A lot of them, unfortunately, were lost when cultures were invaded and invaders tended to kill off a lot of people. It's what the Romans did. It's a thing. Unfortunately, that's another part of human nature, which I'm not crazy about. Uh, but definitely the oral tradition and oral tradition becoming written tradition in the 10th century when monks started to write things down and then freak out because it was super pagan. So they're like, we're just going to throw some Christian stuff in here. We're going to stick the Holy Grail in this story. So it's less about the Green Knight and Summer Kings and more about God and Christianity and also Christianity and God and by the way, God. 
<laughs> but and... I mean, I was, I was actually just listening to this other podcast and they were talking about the Arthur tradition. I think the word is Arthanalia, but <laughs> that's one of them. I just call it the matter of Britain, which confuses people. But... <laughs> yeah. The idea that King Arthur has a story is a story that starts in a pre-Christianized time in Britannia, for lack of a better term. And it starts in Wales and it starts with actually Irish mythology. There's The funny part is it goes from Celtic lore into Brittany. From there, it goes to the French court and then it comes back to England via the French court, which is they're the guys who threw in Lancelot and the right. whole love triangle thing. I am a really big Arthurian nerd. Actually, I took uh, a course at university that is taught by the amazing Leslie Donovan, who also is very well known for being part of the Mythopoeic Society and for teaching Tolkien. And at the same time, I was getting online for the first time. When I went to university, my second year, I got an email account in 1992, and it was the Wild West because it was First of all, adults, there was, AOL did not have an internet gateway. They were, there were children on Prodigy, but that was a closed, was like a closed community, like a gated community where kids had no idea what else was out there. It was mostly university students, government employees, librarians, <laughs> and programmers and stuff. And we were all hanging out on Usenet. And Usenet is in its own way forever and still doing the exact same stuff we were doing offline, which was posting fan fiction and congregating and getting together on mailing lists for shared resources. People who were Highlander and Forever Night fans met in the early 90s on listservs and are still friends to this day. It influenced a lot of our behavior when we all got online and started meeting each other at conventions and staying in touch. And I think Buffy and X-Files for a lot of people was their first online fandom. It yeah. was also one of the first times that people started writing stories while the shows were still airing because it was a very accelerated timeline suddenly where people would finish an episode and be like, I can't get this out of my head. I'm going to write a missing scene or I'm going to write a coda or I'm going to spend the summer breaks back when that used to be a thing writing all kinds of things. I'm going to do a Casablanca pastiche. I guess now they call them fusions, but where you would take a different canon and recast the characters and things like that. People started writing and archiving the stuff online rather than solely printing it in fanzines that would come out at Media West and everyone would travel to Lansing, Michigan and take over a hotel for five days. I love these like levels of intrigue and development of this collective culture around fan fiction. I'm a millennial, so I grew up with the internet. So the time I discovered fan fiction, it was like 99, 98. And okay, so you were born with fanfiction.net. Shane made yeah. that site for you. Yeah, fanfiction.net was my site. And before that was the kind of random independent fan websites that were run for whatever TV show you were into. I was super into Dark Angel and Roswell at the time. I'm surprised that this one site, Crashdown.com, is still alive. I'm shocked. Oh, yes. I remember Crashdown because I was on television without pity, which was yes around the dawn of the millennium. But actually, actually I everybody went to LiveJournal and Smallville was like a huge mixing pot of people who ended up sort of meeting each other because of this one show but then it was very tied into the the fanish experience and a lot of people who had been on platforms social platforms were introduced to fanish behaviors were introduced to writing fanfic and writing and reading stories for them it was like a brave new world it was a whole new country a brand new world and revolutionary you just didn't know what was going on but it was super cool and inventive and then for me what was like my early age of the internet people building their own sites like they that were was like, me you know, I, 12, I built 13 lot. year olds and, and then people <laughs> were older just building using like angel fire and geo cities and just like all that stuff that which I think is really interesting coming in on the ground floor of that because I feel like what we didn't realize is that we were actually taking like an advanced coding class but we were just like I'm writing more Buffy fic <laughs> I had a website I still have it called the Looney Archivist because I started writing Paris and Torres fan fiction on the AOL Star Trek Voyager boards yes, and, Paris and Torres. I ran the PT Collective Archive and I took part in all of the round robins. I would update weekly. This was before automated archives apart from fanfiction.net. Like I discovered right. fanfiction.net when I was writing an article about it and I ended up 
meeting Shing in real life and <laughs> ending up writing a column, which is still up there, I think. Although it is a time capsule. Right. Very much a time capsule. I was in Gargoyles fandom and met... You're just uh, in all my fandoms. <laughs> I was ubiquitous and omnipresent. I was a real fanish butterfly. And the weird thing is my friend Missy wrote something as a gag called the Mary Sue litmus test, which then spread like a disease from fandom to fandom. And the Mary Sue litmus tests became something I actually wrote six of them, but instead of something that we would mock things, it was like, okay, here's these tropes and here is alternatives to these tropes. And here's why we do certain things. And I wrote like these, guides basically explaining what a self-insert was and explaining how to find a beta reader and all of these things and I ran online workshops for like angel fan fiction and people who now write fan fiction for a living people who write original novels but also write media tie-ins right Claudia Gray for example who writes enormous amounts of excellent Star Wars novels I met her originally in fandom I did her first website. And it's fascinating because there's so much parallel evolution. There's so many right. communities that we all develop the same behaviors and independent of one another. Especially like when you look at like music vids, you have anime music vids, which had their own history, their own aesthetic, their own fandom that was completely separate from media vitters in the United States, who then there was cross-breeding and there was cross-training. And it, it's how a lot of people were introduced to non-linear editing on a computer. It was the same thing with fan fiction, where you had people who had previously done zines, like I had published fanzines in the 90s that I started learning HTML before Netscape 1.0. I started making fan sites. I, I, started making fan archives. And then when the automated software that Naomi Novik wrote came out, that was when we started having automated sites that were still, they still weren't particularly user-friendly. You couldn't go in and edit afterwards, but you, you would have things like the Smallville archives that popped up and the Buffy archives that popped up. And especially in the Slash side of fandom, because that was something that used to be very behind closed doors, very closed off, you had a, a lot of people realizing, why aren't we supporting each other and being more public about this? A lot of the, I don't want to say shame exactly, but a lot of the social stigmas yeah. uh, were starting to fall away. And there was, like I said, a lot of cross-pollination. You have people who were writing fan fiction, who were also making music vids, who were also programmers. And it was really a fertile time in a fertile ground. It was like a perfect storm in a lot of ways. And right. from that grew the OTW. The archive of our own started basically because people suddenly realized, oh crap, the stuff we love might go away someday because LiveJournal banned a ton of communities based on a crazy Christian watch group. And people who had always had access to all of these wonderful shared resources freaked out. And so that was the genesis of Archive of Our Own. It was named by a user named Bouzette during an IRC chat, I believe, based on the literary A Room of One's Own. And it just caught on. Not only that, it gave us a place to centralize that wasn't going to go anywhere, that they own the servers, but they're not at the mercy of a host. It was the same reason why fanfiction.net was able to survive. Shing paid for the hosting. He built it because he wanted, as a programmer, to build a website that could grow. He wasn't even a fan fiction reader. He just saw it as something that was something that could really grow and become more universal. All of the advertising on the site went for paying for the hosting and paying for the bandwidth. I don't think people realize then or now how much bandwidth fan fiction sites use. And we're talking 10 times what Amazon uses in a day. So that's fascinating. And it's become a huge global community. And I feel like I was in the middle where I wasn't from the first couple of generations of media fanfic writers. I wasn't in Star Trek, the original series fandom. I wasn't in Man From U.N.C.L.E. or The Professionals or Doctor Who. But my fanish grandmothers who raised me basically were. They were the ones editing fanzines and mentoring young people in the community. And so I would get to be on 
panels with people like Jean Laura, who wrote some of my favorite Star Trek tie-in novels. And it did my head in at the time where I'm like, oh my God, she's right there. I could touch her. I won't because that's creepy. But, <laughs> but we ended up being on a couple of panels together at Media West over the years and, and a great time was had by all. <laughs> and that sort of extends now where the internet broke down a lot of communication barriers where we have content creators and fans in dialogue in a way that they never were before for, for good or ill. But like I met Greg Weissman at the very first Gargoyles convention and then didn't see him for, I don't know, 10 years maybe. And then we ended up on a panel together at a convention and now we talk once or twice a year back when I used to actually go to conventions before the pandemic and if you had said to the 20 something Tara O'Shea watching gargoyles and and writing stories for a mailing list that someday I would be on a first name basis with the guy who created the show I would have been like what are you out of your mind that's (laughs) insane or that I'd have the opportunity to sit down with the guy who wrote my favorite firefly episode and say to his face Jose Molina you wrote my favorite firefly episode that was nuts that was insane that was awesome and that is also rare, but... But it's also possible. And I think it's one of the... Yeah, the internet really changed exactly. a lot. <laughs> the, internet, the internet changed so much. And, and for those, for, you know, from people who are listening to this episode, what, what, what Tara just did is really just take us through about 30 years or so of <laughs> fan fiction history in about 15 minutes. Yeah, at least media fan fiction, like like right, you said. Me, me, right, me, media fan fiction. Sherlock Holmes and transformative works have been going back since the cave paintings, as we said. Media fan fiction was still something that was very new outside of certain traditions. Like Sherlockian folks, they were writing, the Baker Street Irregulars were writing fanfic and having their own zines. They just didn't use the same terminology. Star Trek for a lot of people, and Man from Uncle, which is another fandom that people don't remember all the time, but it was huge. Man from Uncle was huge. And it was also one of the very uh, first, along with Kirk and Spock, Napoleon Solo and Ilya Nikolaevich Kriakin, was one of the first big slash pairings. And so that was a fandom that had not just one slash scene, but several. Mm. Um, and I actually had never seen the show. And so when I moved in with a couple of Man from Uncle fans, they were like, allow us to allow you to introduce you to the wonder that is our fandom and it was interesting because I I didn't have the slash goggles permanently welded to my eyes I read the zines and I watched the show and I could see why people shipped it It wasn't a dynamic that I got into but there were stories where I would be like of course people ship Danny and Rusty from Ocean's Eleven clearly they are exes and clearly they have banged there are times when you just presume all characters are bisexual until proven otherwise and there are other times where it's baked in. Things like Shira, we would never have had canonical Adora Katra or canonical Korra and Asami when I was growing up. It would have all been coded. It would have all been wear a white carnation, friend of Dorothy sort of thing. Not saying that fan fiction is anything like tr- trying to hide homosexuality when it was illegal. Well, well but- there's something to be said for fan fiction and and transformative works um, serving communities that have been underserved by wider media. But there's still the same issues. There's still, unfortunately, a lot of ageism, a lot of racism, a lot of unacknowledged racism, which really bothers a lot of people. I have a good friend that I met in Star Trek fandom. It was actually the film that brought me back to Star Trek. Mm. And she was writing really excellent Uhura fic. Her online name is Ruby Nye, and she is fantastic. And there was a lot of backlash against Spock and Uhura canon that was not entirely based in the source material, but more based in the how dare you break up our slash couple that is our sort of holy text. And there was a lot of, of veiled racism in the way they talked about Uhura. So I ended up writing like this huge essay comparing Uhura and McCoy's roles mm. and because they serve the same purpose in the story for Kirk and Spock. And so there's parallels that are there. And also pointing out that there was a big Spock-Uhura fandom in the original series. They flirted. There was some serious music playing going on. If Very you know much I mean. like, do you think Spock teaches everybody how to play his liar? <laughs> 
I'm really, <laughs> is that what the kids are calling it these days? Hey, I'm, I'm just talking about canon. We're going to get more canon. And for the first time since 1964, we have new Pike and number one canon. We do, we do. New Spock and Uhura canon. And it's what a time to be alive. Have- <laughs> Actually, I want to rewind you a little bit. One, you mentioned in the 90s about some of the fan fiction around that. And specifically, I'm thinking about Forever Night fan fiction. And I had talked to one of my friends about this about how when Forever Night ended, people were up in arms about (laughs) that series finale and how there's various kind of like watershed moments in modern internet fan fiction history. And I feel like that's one of them. That one was an interesting one because after I graduated university in December 95, my parents were like, what do you want as a a graduation gift? And I I told them I want to go to Toronto. Because I'd never been, and because at the time I was running a mailing list for the Canadian show Due South, and I also was a big Forever Night nerd, and so I I was going to spend two weeks up in Toronto visiting with friends I had known from listservs, and I getting to actually meet in person the production assistants in the Due South office that I had known, because basically early on when Due South started airing, they foolishly gave me the phone number of the production office, which no one at a network should ever do, but they did. And I ended up talking to their script coordinator and he's like, we're getting the internet feedback. I was like, okay, really? He's like, yeah, we're in Prodigy. And I'm like, oh no. So I used to go and print off all of the posts about the episodes from Records TV and Alt SF TV and all that stuff. And I would mail this two inch thick packet each couple of weeks up to Paul Haggis and David Shore in Toronto. So they could basically see the, here's what's hitting with people. Here's what people are talking about. This was in the precursor you know, to the days when we would actually have the production staff on the mailing list. That happened a year or two later. I'm sorry. Just like, right. I'm just, I'm just processing all of this because, you yeah, know, I was, I was like, because, because these days you're like, stuff. <laughs> if you want to talk to the writers and the showrunners, you just send a tweet and it's there. They essentially have you being like, what's the pulse of the fans and you're like let me print this out so i actually have to go to my computer print it all out then put it go to the computer lab on campus this was this is a lab on campus. was this this like dot matrix level did you have the little tearaway hey this is leticia um from the future but i wanted to say that the reason why this is so funny to me is because the dot matrix if you weren't alive back then was basically the way information would be printed out on computers back in the early 90s and the reason why i know about it is because that's how printer paper came out when i was in kindergarten and first grade and we had these old computers and when they print things out they make all the sounds like so the fact that she is using that system one brings it back a lot of memories for me but also when i say that it had a tearaway on the side of each piece of paper you could kind of fold it Uh, Because you had this like strip of paper that was perforated so you could tear it away and it had these little circles on through them. That was like the dot matrix. That's how the computer would read where to print. But anyway, as a kid, I used to rip off those little side things, staple them together and try to make a crown. And if you were a kid in that day, you did that too. Don't lie. Anyway. Back to the episode. Oh yeah, this would have been like early 90s. So I was running a mailing list for New South. I was running another mailing list for Lois and Clark because wow. I was a huge Superman fan. And that was one of my favorites I was too. on the Forever Night and Highlander mailing list. There was a lot of crossover there. And I actually met Gillian Horvath because of those mailing lists because she uh, started writing Forever Night while she was working in the Highlander office. And that's another friendship that was like, would never have happened without the internet. It still blows my mind. Basically, I ended up having these relationships with people who worked on the other side of, of that line. It's not like I was talking to Paul Haggis on the regular. That only happened once. But it was a way to help manage the traffic both ways. That fans weren't dictating what was happening, which shouldn't be anyway, because fans don't necessarily want what makes good television. That's what fan fiction is for us to write all of the things of our heart that we desperately want that work in that medium that don't work in television or can't work in television. There are a lot of things like rare pairs, a lot of AUs, a lot of, I've written shipfic for characters who've never met in canon 
and run like tiny little websites for them and have little groups of people who would join me and in on our little island of say Darcy and Hawkeye or <laughs> Stormer and Riot from Jim going another one back to my early childhood and it was amazing and so I went up to Toronto and I ended up meeting uh, someone from the Forever Night List and she's let's go by the studio because they haven't packed up yet and I was like what She's like, yeah, let's just go drive by. I don't know what she was planning to do, whether she was like, actually, let's go dumpster driving. I don't think that's what she meant. But the security guard met us at the door and was like, do you want to come in and look at the sets? And huh? <laughs> like, There's, there, are things that, there are things that, that should never have happened aligned and happened. And I ended up reading the finale script in March 1996 several months before it aired because <laughs> okay you can't okay listeners you can't see my mouth right now but it's on the floor just oh my god i can't believe that happened hey listener it's me again uh this might be a good time for you to at the very least wikipedia forever night because we start going on and on about it for a while um, I clearly love that show. I actually used to watch it on the Sci-Fi Channel, which is why I have clear memories of how it began and how it ended. But yeah, uh, don't want to lose you too hard. So yeah, Wikipedia, watch a couple episodes and come back. Oh yeah, because Forever Night and Due South were both like the shows that couldn't die. Every year they were canceled. Every year they came back either in first run syndication or on USA Network. Like they had a life of their own. The fans campaigned incredibly hard and the shows had enough of an audience that somebody would find the $2.50 Canadian that they could use to make the show. I'm kidding. It was about 300,000 Canadian per episode. But James Perriott, who was the executive producer, was doing everything in his power to kill Forever Night. He was, he was like, this is not what I want to be known for the rest of my life. Which I guess, hey, cheers to you, buddy. Unfortunately, it's still going to be what you're known for the rest of your life because that <laughs> script was horrifying. I, I sat in my hotel room reading it and I was like, this is awful. And so the first thing I did when I got back to the States was mail a copy to my friend Susan Garrett, who was an amazing fan. She was about 20 years older than I was and was just a force of nature and she was a prolific writer in Forever Night fandom. She actually wrote one of the tie-in novels when they had Forever Night tie-in novels. I sent a copy to her because I was like, okay, you have to be prepared for this because it is going to be Blake 7 level blast radius when this finally airs. And all the actors and all of the production staff and all the writers, they did their best. They acted their hearts out. They tried to fix it and there was no way to be fixed. There's still ne nebulous things on how not alive Nick and Nat are. It's nothing was definitive. I saw the original pilot movie, which Jim Perriott, I think, had nothing to do with, and asked Christopher Golden sometime about Forever Night and his friend from college, who was the one who pitched the series to the network, and how much money, and they probably owe Chris. But Chris Golden has a wonderful novel career and he writes comics and he is amazing. And so it's not like he is suffering, but he does have some stories to tell. But Forever Night was one of those fandoms where we, we would get together at conventions. We knew at that point, I think all the cast except Kath Disher. Kath Disher unfortunately had some very negative experiences with the stalker and wisely did not come to conventions because it would have literally put her in danger but Nigel and Gare and Deb were very active in the fandoms one of my best friends used to cosplay Jeanette because she and Deb could have been twins and I wish I could show you pictures but we ended up knowing these people to speak to where you would Gare was doing a one-man show in Chicago all the Forever Night fans would get together and buy tickets and go see it which we did and it, it became a social thing where afterward you go to the bar with the actor and you talk. And that is just something that used to happen in these rare circumstances where you would have these, I don't want to say parasocial because they're not quite, they're genuine. But I feel like it's different, a little different talking about this particular era and even going into later into fandom where the active part of the fandoms were relatively small. There was enough people that there was a groundswell, but you're talking highly organized. And also I feel like sometimes, uh, at least at this particular time, there's also this awareness of boundaries 
which I feel like has gotten a lot less with social media. And part of it is just the sample size. Surgeon's law applies. And if you have a hundred fans and three of them are, let's call them red dots, people with questionable social skills who should not be left alone with a cast at a convention, for example. When it's a hundred fans, it's not that big of a deal. When it's a hundred thousand fans, that's 3,000 red dots. That's a little harder to manage. But when you had these people in fandom who had been in fandom in their teens back in the you know 70s, they were huge into charity auctions. Lights Camera Auction up in Canada was actually very tied to Forever Night fandom and then later La Femme Nikita fandom. And directors like John Kassar, who ended up, I think, being one of the founders of that particular one, raising money for charity was one of the things that fans are very good at. And it it helped spread the word. It helped keep the show alive. It helped keep the fandom alive. And it was something that that people really enjoyed doing. And I worked on conventions. I think the first Earth 2 convention, I ended up doing all the location scouting and calling everybody's agents and designing the covers of the, designing the program and everything. And we ended up with almost the entire cast there. Wow. And it was surreal and wonderful. And because for them, it was reunion. They had spent a year and a half in New Mexico making the show that a handful of people loved and watched. And that was it. And we all got together at the hotel. And for them, you know, it was this great big reunion. The stunt guys were there and being there and being like also in Gargoyles fandom. So when Clancy Brown is doing his panel and saying, people are like, are you doing more Gargoyles? He's like, oh no, that's finished. I'm like, actually the episodes where you're playing this character and this character haven't aired yet. I knew that he had done the voice patch. Uh, that, that he had done the recordings by a voice patch, but that the episodes were airing like in the following spring or whatever. And, and there's something deeply bizarre about having an actor look at you and the actor standing next to me going, this is Tara, she knows everything. No, I really don't. I just know specific information that I share when it's appropriate. And, and the thing is, I'm not unique. There were Susan Garrett, who unfortunately passed away uh, from cancer, several years ago she was like that she was like an amazing nexus where she was able to look at something and see the potential that it had something like the secret adventures of jules verne which was first run syndication ran for two years died a terrible death but she was out there getting the actors to conventions and making fanzines and running mailing lists and running fan clubs and stuff for sheer joy. It was something that she did. She didn't make any money at it. She didn't have like generational wealth or anything. She was an IT tech from Tom's River, New Jersey, but she was very good with people and very funny and very good writer. And she would just go out there and do stuff. And I learned a lot of things from her. And I spent 20 years online in various forms, shepherding along younger fans. (laughs) My best friend and I met in Star Trek fandom in 2010 because we both loved Pike and Number One and that became a little corner of fandom that we saw take root and grow. And she visited me on school breaks and then ended up moving up to Chicago. Well, you mentioned something that I think is also really important and interesting in, I feel like the fandom culture, and that's the the mentoring aspect of it. That there's, whether it's doing fan fiction and getting a beta and learning how to be a better writer, or if it's organizing and organizing your own cons or your own small groups or mailing lists or whatever it is, and having a fan who's been in it for a while to show you the ropes, which again, I feel like is an aspect while fan fiction and, and various fandoms have got gained a greater presence, um, especially over the past you know 10 years, there are aspects of the communal aspect of fandom which I don't think it's as much notice and but I do think they are are important in essentially that culture. It's interesting because a lot of fandom became decentralized after people started leaving live journal for Tumblr because Tumblr is very decentralized it's a very different place to hang out the fanish behaviors that people have seeking out people with shared interests and talking for hours and hours. That never changes. The way we do it would change and the speed with which we would do it would change as we found Usenet and then listservs and then mailing lists, which were different from listservs, but for all intents and purposes were the same thing. And then message boards and then 
LiveJournal and then Tumblr and then on ad infinitum as the old Yahoo groups got, you know, swallowed up and gone, which had been one list, which had been all of these different places where we could gather and build things. GeoCities, Acme City, we were losing them. We're still losing them because Russia owns LiveJournal. That's, that means those servers are not going to stay online forever. Uh, there are already people out there making noise about back up your LJ, load everything up on, on uh, DreamWidth because this will not be here forever. And th things like fanlore.org, which is literally the living history of fandom, but it's people volunteer their time and they write articles and it's a gigantic wiki. And there's a huge fanzine archive at one of the universities in the United States. I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but I will email you with that info after this. Because when people, a lot of times, unfortunately, when fans pass away, we want to make sure the info is out there to get their fanzine collections to the special collections archive at the university so it's preserved. And when my generation passes, we've got to figure out how are we going to keep the things that we built online, the bills paid for that. It's <laughs> otherwise, eventually, as happens with so many domains, people at the domains lapse and then the sites disappear. I have been really lucky that I've been able to keep um, all of my nerdy fan sites alive. They're not actively updated, but they're still there. If you wanted to go look at the PT Collective Archive, you can, it's still there. It's just no longer at its own URL, but it's on Looney Archivist and Jake 2.0, which was a show that me and three other people watched. I am I one of those three. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that show was, it, it grew out of like my love of 80s action adventure. It was Scarecrow and Mrs. King to me, all wrapped up in a shiny red bow. And I got to meet Javier Grigio Mark's watch because of it. And that's super cool. I interviewed him and then we met in person at a convention and, and then the middleman happened and then the middleman the crowdfunding for the graphic novel happened. And just so many wonderful things that, that I was lucky enough to end up going from journalist and interviewee to friends to actual like real life friends. When I won the Hugo, he was the person I called. That is awesome. <laughs> and I'm sorry, you're going to have to rewind that because you just look at, by the way, I won the Hugo. For what? Well, no, no, I, all right, I should yourself. say, I didn't win the Hugo. I created and co-edited a collection of essays about Doctor Who and women in Doctor Who on both sides of the camera, fans and, and actors. It was called Chicks Dig Time Lords. And it was the first of its kind, and it made a little bit of a splash. And apparently it, it also helped launch uh, the Emnity between the woke SF fans and the dead white guy worshiping SF fans, which I think called themselves the sad puppies or angry puppies. I don't even know. Like science fiction and fantasy fandom is not really where I hang out. I hang out in media fandom. And sometimes right. those lines blur. But my co-editor, I got dropped. I got dropped by the publisher, but the co-editor went on to do other Chicks books. So Chicks Dig Comics, Chicks Dig, whatever the Joss Whedon one was, I can't even remember before everyone on the planet found out how horrible human being he was. But the shows still mean a lot to people. So we didn't ask if that was what it was called. They, people still wrote scholarly essays about it and about their relationships with it. Engaging with the text is what fans do. Right. And so we ended up on the Yugo ballot for best related work. I bought a dress. I went to Reno. I never thought I would win. Are you kidding me? I was up against Gary Wolf in a book about Heinlein and all these other people who were really awesome. And then it ended up winning. And that was bizarre and wonderful and paved the way for a lot of really great stuff that other people are able to do after us. Because our book was certainly not the best. It was neither fish nor fowl. It was the first. And so because it was the first of its kind, the publisher was very tentative about it and very hands-on in a way that the book didn't really necessarily benefit from, but it meant that the next book did because he was more hands-off. And it was just there to acknowledge the fact that in America, especially Doctor Who fandom was full of women and full of women who ran conventions and did fan films and did cosplay and all of these things that it was 
known as a boys club the way that star wars fandom for a long time was known as a boys club and pointing out that no there have been ladies here the entire time and they have built a lot of the structures that you rely on but also they're big nerds there were actually shonen mcguire before she was a published author was in the book actually her first novel i think came out two years before the book did because the book had a very long gestation period but shonen wrote a wonderful essay about adric of all people that is a delight and i was more um, on the side of getting more the fan side where i was slightly less interested in the published author side and way more interested in trying to get regular women's story. i don't want to say regular but like the non-famous contingents stories or like i wanted the people not, who not, were not, not actively creating the media but those who are consuming and creating culture based yeah i wanted the women who did zines i wanted the women who ran conventions i wanted the boots on the ground people whose names weren't known to have a place where their names would be enshrined and but also just to be able to tell their stories and tell the stories of community because those are the things that interest me and what that collection actually introduced me to was I didn't think that the book would be a big hit with guys I presumed it would only really be read by other fangirls and the people who had weaponized the word squee against us we reclaimed it it's like we we were all about the squee and we refused to be shamed for being fangirls and it was a lot of fun and the number of guys who got the book for their significant others or their daughters but just who got it and read it and had their own relationship with it in fact the one lone male contributor in the last couple of years came out as trans so it actually is all women no dudes except for the publisher so it was really cool it was like the precursor to things like people of color destroy science fiction like that idea that we're gonna take the actual niche people and we are going to give them the reins and give them a stage and that was really cool that's and i love that you you mentioned uh, earlier javier and i believe i saw this one tweet that he sent out that people were like issuing on fan fiction as they do on the internet like every six months like clockwork and he was like if you've got a problem with fan fiction here's my stuff and you can come over my house and shine my emmys <laughs> i was like stay home and yes oh joy when jake 2.0 because i started writing fic immediately of course because i'm me when i started posting stories on fanfiction.net the prop guy was really excited because the prop guy was on the mailing list that we were on. It was like, we have a category on fanfiction.net now. Our, our little show has made it. I'm like, please, God, don't print anything out and give it to anyone. What were you thinking? Although he is a wonderful guy and he still works in the industry and everyone should follow him on Instagram because right now he's doing the props for Kung Fu and it's huge amounts of fun. Kung Fu in itself, which is basically fan fiction of the original idea just completely divorced from the Kwai Chang Kane version I'm I actually really love Kung Fu well there I don't but there are now officially that would make that, that would make it three different Kung Fu television shows because uh, one in yeah. the 70s yeah, Kung Fu the next generation whatever the heck that was actually called um <laughs> yeah like the Kung Fu the Kung Fu the legend continues like, like I was up at 2 a.m watching nonsense tv and that was on because that was the first run syndication boom of the 90s thanks to Xena and it is almost entirely thanks to Xena not so much Hercules although um he was there well, that's he, he was there he was you know there. babylon 5 was there but xena pulled the numbers xena spawned this huge little boom of stuff where we got kung fu the legend continues and jack um, of all trades uh oh god i loved um, oh cleopatra cleopatra, cleopatra 2025 20, um Nikita was kind of in there i think it was warner brothers realizing they owned an ip that could in fact be spun off and watching them then do it again with Maggie Q was fascinating because it really was an adaptation of the Canadian series, not the movie or the American version of the movie or Alias, which if you watch the Alias pilot, it is very obviously Nikita fanfic with the name scrubbed off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> right like, down it, to the dead love interest. <laughs> no, actually, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I've actually never made that connection, but it's interesting. Oh, I do. Like <laughs> that type of boom, because I know when I think about my writing and the things that I like to either write fanfic or the things I want to do as far as screenplays, the syndication boom of the mid-90s definitely for me plays very large because I'm just like, yes, 
action and girls with guns and there are fights and there's this and there's that. It's very exciting to me. And I really love that people remember Babylon 5, but they don't necessarily remember Time Tracks or Vanishing Sun. I've never heard of huge. Vanishing Sun for me was huge. It was an almost entirely Asian cast. People who you have since seen in pretty much everything. Woo assassins and all kinds of things. And then you had, oh, it was based on an incredibly cheesy, horrible comic book. I shouldn't say horrible. To me, it was not my taste. But William was in it, sword arm. What was that called? It was a woman. She was a Oh, Witchblade. Thank you. I'm like, (laughs) Nancy Butler was in it. Her name was Pez. She had arm armor that was from a bracelet. That show introduced me to the joy and wonder that is Will Yoon, that then we got to see him blossom and shine in the, oh, bugger, it's in, uh, on Netflix. You know what? This is what happens when I don't take my second Adderall. Wait. Altered Carbon. Yes, Altered Carbon. He plays he plays OG Takashi in, in Altered Carbon. And it's been amazing watching these actors who I, I always remember, like the one guest spot they did on whatever show. Like I still look at Veronica Mars' dad, Rico, oh God. I can't pronounce his last name. It's something in Italian that starts with an C. And I still think of him as, oh, hey, it's Wood Chipper Guy from Friday the 13th, the series. <laughs> Which is probably like one of the first credits on his resume that probably isn't on his resume anymore. It may not be. If you made an impact as Wood Chipper Guy, soon you get to be a Vicar- Well, Veronica and I'm sitting in the theater watching Galaxy Quest with one of my best friends. And she keeps going, why does that guy look so familiar? And I'm like running through all of his roles, like, you know, Veronica Mars and just shoot me and I finally go wood chipper guy from fry teeth she's like oh <laughs> so you know that he he I mean, uh, was part of that that 90s syndication boom Dracula the series which nobody saw except five people one of the darlings of Canadian indie cinema was in it oh god she's she was all over the place and she was also in she plays Amanda Grayson Spock's mother in Star Trek Discovery oh yeah. I don't know that actress, but yeah. I know that character and she's- She actually is like a ringer for the original actress. I, I really, but she was everywhere. She was in Exotica. She was in, oh gosh, a lot of, uh, just- Just a, just a lot if of- If it was made in Canada and it was vaguely, weirdly sexy, then she was in it somewhere. It's the same group of Canadian writers and directors that, that did things like Hardcore Logo and Exotica and just- the, and it's, and it's after. funny because that era is exactly why Vancouver is on my need to go list. <gasps> it is awesome. If you go, you have to go to Vancouver Island because there's this amazing indoor sort of bazaar that has like the most amazing food and music and shops. And it's really cool. That was the one time I went to Vancouver. I went to Vancouver Island and it was the best day I had. I do. I have one, one more question for you. Then we're going to finish up. And this is a big one. So the public acceptance of fanfic has definitely changed drastically over the past 20 years. And one of those other big watershed moments was, of course, around Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey and all of that. Well, earlier than that, the wind gone. Because you have Gregory Maguire doing Wicked, but then you also had the retelling of Gone with the Wind from the point of view of one of the slaves. And that was a huge deal for transformative works. And that was also a lot of people who were reading Wicked and then later seeing the stage show didn't really realize that this is transformative work. The only reason that that these things are able to exist in our world is because the source material is out of copyright. But it's still fanfic. The same way that Hamlet is fanfic, or at least derivative work. And derivative is not a pejorative, which is one of the things that I'm constantly reminding people that, like we were talking about earlier, the number of things that are derivative work that are still considered complete classics of their genres and their mediums. Like people who say, oh, I don't like remakes. I'm like, oh, so His Girl Friday didn't work for you? What about The Maltese Falcon? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, both remakes. Both remakes. <laughs> Absolutely. Or just talking about essentially the entire Disney canon. Actually, what's interesting about the Disney canon is that even the the whole Disney legal machine that's trying to keep Mickey Mouse from falling into the public domain has had this huge effect on publishing and but also fan fiction where you know they used to the Disney legal department used to go out and the the C and D letters 
would fly like a uh, cease and desist yeah that's, i was about to say i was about to say that that's cease and desist for all of you who don't know yeah. and for the for those new young fan this. fiction writers who don't know the terror <laughs> that was the cease and desist letter and russell shamus for that and a couple other publishers and it was just like here well, we are the, writing the our stuff and then we get the thing that's interesting about the cnds is there there is a reason to defend your trademarks because if you don't you lose them that's just life and that is something that is valid but what people didn't realize for a long time is that fandom they're not just republishing what already exists they are creating new things based on something that already exists and it is a self-perpetuating machine that is basically free buzz for your product it is free advertising that's what acme city was it was warner brothers saying we have all of this ip that GeoCities advertisers are making money off of, we're going to launch our own community. So there were Nikita fan sites that were born there and the Iron Giant. I actually ran the Iron Giant section for a while. They had, because they had sent out like a CND letter to a Nikita website and we were like, guys, this is a mistake. You shouldn't be doing this. So they, we came up with a list of what you could and couldn't do in terms of using the show logo or photography, anything that would damaged the trademark and and we found this middle ground and that was one of the first sort of experiments with that and that was I want to say around 98-99 because I it didn't last that long it was a spinoff from Fortune City but it was one of the times when the IP owners tried to monetize fandom and or at least protect their investments and you would see it happen over and over again where people say hey people are doing this for free. We should find a way to make money off it. So you would have like fandom.com suing Carol Borrell, who already owned the URL. And that's another tale for another day. Oh yeah. But, I mean, they're, they're doing that now. There's like the whole thing with Wattpad trying to do something that monetizes a fanfic. And I think Amazon tried to do it recently and that just failed. People read the TOS a lot more clearly now when there are contests of, hey, submit your fan fiction. And people go, yeah, but... Here in the fine print, it says that you own everything in perpetuity, everything, and you can, in fact, resell it and option it and get it made into a TV series, and I will never see a dime. And fans are getting more savvy about that, and so they are not partaking. There's a lot. It's the way artist community pivoted hard left away from DeviantArt when DA started licensing content. Basically, anything hosted on DeviantArt that you didn't opt out of, they were, by the TOS, given license to sell your work that's not cool and people are learning and a lot more savvy but they have to be because as you said the the last 30 years all of these fanish behaviors that used to be tiny groups of people around the world are now mainstream huge sample size and and it's a very different community that it used to be there are a lot of people who for years assumed all fan fiction was smut and trying to explain that was not to her, or that all fan fiction was slash, which is another thing that people still seem to, they only ever want to talk about the things that they find exotic or spicy or whatever. And it's like, is really more a comfort thing for a lot of people. Um. I know for me, my one of some of my favorite fics right now from Falcon and the Winter Soldier and the Bucky and Sarah ship. <gasps> oh my God, yes. Mostly Hello. because I love the fics where they are doing nothing but raising her boys and going to PTA meetings. Oh and my God. That- there was that one that started while the show was airing and I was like, I am like I ship this it is my job and I am going up for promotion and the actress (laughs) who played Sarah saw the tweet and she was and I was just like no you don't understand (laughs) because I was was keeping track of how many fix were coming up on uh, on AO3 I was like we've got five minutes of content and there are now 400 fix now there's 600 there's seven and I also I have a thing where it's look there are a lot of incredibly stunning actresses of color who do not get shipped because they are not Halle Berry or they're not Zoe Kravitz. Colorism is still a thing and you don't see those characters put out there. The way that fandom embraced Sarah made me so happy and I want to see more of that. I want to see, I want to see Lupita Nyong'o get as many roles per year as Zoe Kravitz does because they're both amazing actresses, but it's still it's still harder for people like Yitzhide Badaki, who is stunning, but a, a beautiful dark-skinned woman. 
getting the same attention and the same roles and the same respect and the same buzz. And that's something that, you know, just as a nerd, I don't know, that's something like, I have always been drawn to the people who weren't the center of attention. I was always writing about the sidekicks and the best friends and the, the quirky Darcy Lewis's of the world. And so I've always been very conscious of when the fandom revolves around the straight white guys. I have no interest, <laughs> no offense, or even the gay white guys. I just really, guys in general are not my draw for fiction. <laughs> there, there has to be a female character in there that I can glom onto that speaks to me. No offense to the Sam Bucky shippers because oh, also, no offense you know, they are also fighting the good fight out there. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And like what I personally am grateful for, and one of the reasons why I did, I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you, that as a millennial, as much as that term annoys me, I got in to the fandom community while the internet was still in its infancy and it's like preteen years. I feel really grateful that some of the fandom culture and that development that you talked about having in you know the 90s and that you were guided into by people who had been in fandom longer than you and all that that I also got some of that too in the rough ages early days of the internet web 1.0 as it were and that culture while it still exists it has disseminated the sound size has gotten so big and, and it's really it comes down to to individual communities like I know yes. for a lot of people their introduction to introduction to fandom was through anime that was dubbed in English and shown on television here. Yeah. Whereas those shows I had seen fan subbed, translated, translated from Japanese and subtitled by fans who would then circulate the tapes around the country. Which um, is, that's like things that fans had to do because, yeah. because either the English dub was really bad or- but there weren't know, English dubs, that's just it. Is, yeah, is yeah, I so was watching this stuff like in the early 90s and there were shows from Japan that from the 80s that were coming over like Ranma One Half and all of the Gundams there's so many Gundams there are still so many Gundams, so many but, Gundams. I still love them. but but the whole idea of and Cream Lemon which gave its name to an entire genre who don't know where the name came from which I find hilarious when people refer to a story that has mature content as a lemon, lemon. do you guys not know about the softcore pixelated porn no really? I actually don't know I, I well, I did not know that. I, it is, I, look up I, cream I lemon, lemon and you will learn. I used the term lime and I had no clue that it actually had a- It's all parallel evolution. It's all that people develop their own terminology and their own ways. And, and there are things that once the smaller communities merge into larger communities become standardized and sometimes they don't. X-Files fandom was another one where they had- their own particular patois. They had their own sort of language that got merged into the mainstream. I don't think we referred to the shipping until Mulder and Scully. And Gossamer was one of the first largest online fan fiction archives. I think it started off as an FTP site. That's how old we were when, when X-Files started. It was the Star Trek, the original series for a whole generation of people who that was their first experience with fan fiction. And nowadays you're going to get the next generation of kids who are like, I grew up reading Naruto. And it's, of course you did, because you should. And then there's, there, then there's the, you about like the fan fiction acceptance, like what people were cool with progressively and what they like hid in their silos. So for me, I know it was interesting to seeing the large acceptance of real person fic, which I, long, still I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that either. In but it's always been there since the Beatles. People right. have always written, it, it, particularly it's, in uh, yeah, music fandom. Yeah, fandom is just a big thing. And it's, and it's, it's. And, and it's, bands like My Chemical Romance, I think are pretty aware of it by now. When a bunch of old white ladies show up at your concerts, hmm, there's a light bulb that goes off. I think what kind of like people's entrance, entrances. I know my entrance was like the various sci-fi shows, the 90s, other people's entrances were whatever. And it's if you had this keen interest and you go on the internet, or for, for me, it was go on the internet and find these people. And for other people, it was like, go to a place and someone will find you. It's just, it's, it's really fascinating. And I think like also the culture of this is something we keep to ourselves. I know, I remember when I would go to like my first conventions and you would meet your, you know, sometimes meet people, blah, blah, blah. But like fan fiction was something you did not talk about. You don't do it. 
but well and it's interesting because a lot of it is people becoming more comfortable with the subject matter that people are writing about like for for example people are there's an, a huge thriving publishing industry of male romances that i think probably a lot of readers started off reading tv slash now the huge proportion of straight women writing them is still a little i'm making my hand doing the come see come saw gesture eh, i don't know yeah. how i feel about that yet yeah but it's, i i like femme slash a whole lot but i do not equate that with being an LGBT plus activist. And there's a lot of people who still think of it. it's like the new, my, I can't be racist. Do I have a black friend? No, please don't. Like I am the whitest white girl who ever white girl, but I still try to make sure that I am not putting bad juju out there. It's, I try my best to not be a fuck up in public and, and in private and at, at any point, because I love what I love, but that doesn't mean that it's better than any one else's thing that they love. I don't have to say, oh, this thing that I read that I loved is high art because I loved it. No, it's a cheese ball. Fake marrieds in the suburbs, only one bed. That's awesome. I love it for <laughs> what it is. Don't give me this graphic novel shit. They're comics and they do the very best things that comics do, which is be a unique medium where the artists and the writers and the letterers and the colorists are all working together the same way television is this amazing collaborative art form. Love it for what it is. It doesn't have to be prestige TV for you to love it. Xena doesn't have to be a guilty pleasure. It can just be a pleasure. And people are sort of coming to that place where they're learning to not self-censor that way. They're also learning to become more comfortable with the idea of, I am allowed to like things. I am allowed to like things and be joyful about things. A lot of fans only ever open their mouths to complain, which is why there's this big perception a lot of times of fandoms being a monolith and usually negative, because a lot of times fans don't speak up when they love something, which is why I'm a huge proponent. I'm like, if something hits for you and you love it, find a way, send a letter, tweet something, just tell people you love it, because I can guarantee every writer in the world does not get tired of hearing that something they put out there in the world found a home. I just, oh God, that hit me so hard. And I love that. Just thank you. You're welcome. Because that's so important because being creative is hard in any shape, form, or fashion. Yeah. And whether it is a social activity where you're not interested in becoming a better writer, you're interested in posting crack fic that you and your friends read and are having a good time writing and reading, that is valid. Right. That, That writing a Mary Sue is not a bad thing. It's an important growth step. Getting them published like Peter David and the New Voyages, that's a whole other story, which I won't go into right now. Mackenzie Calhoun, really? These things that used to be considered, oh no, you must never write the self-insert. You must never write the Mary Sue because you will be mocked and it's bad and people don't read them. You know what? That's a lie. Everybody starts off that way because that's how human brains work. We think, what would I do? If I were in this situation, or if I were dating this particular character, or if I were trying to be the Yenta to get these other two people to end up in a Canadian shack, as an example, Snowden to a Canadian shack being an excellent example of something that a Yenta would do. These things are normal and should be celebrated as normal. And whether it is considered, quote unquote, practice for becoming a real writer, which is Real writer in quotes. people say all the time. But people are like, yes, I cut my teeth in fan fiction and it prepared me for a career as a novelist. Those are absolutely true words, but it does not mean that fan fiction is a medium just for people to practice before they get to the big leagues. We're not the farm leagues. We are our own big leagues. It's just that we play in completely different ways that only work. Like because of the assumed level of knowledge and because of the reliance on the reader and the author having that shared canon, we get to skip the first two chapters of every serial novel that starts with the story thus far. There are things that work like alternative universe fanfic that only work because of the reader's relationship to the canon universe, where it would not hit the same way if you filed the serial numbers off. And there are all sorts of things like that make 
transformative works unique to me, that it is about participatory culture. And if you haven't read it yet, Henry Jenkins' book about fandom as a participatory culture is still one of the seminal works out there. He was one of the first ACA fans, basically, writing about fandom and fan fiction in the mainstream. And it is got the original printing has a cover by Jean, Jean Kluge, who was an amazing artist as well, and she is still around and still selling prints in order to pay for her cat's food. People should buy from her. But it well, is, oh God, the name of the book just jumped out of my brain. Textual Poachers. That's what yeah. it's called. Textual, Textual Poachers. Poachers. And I've heard about that before, and I definitely want to pick that up. You should read it. And there's a follow-up I've heard, but I haven't read that one yet. And a like, lot of the people like who the- are my mentors are in that book. And the name poachers, I feel like sometimes put people off, but it's, from what I'm told, just a very caring tone about the work. And it was somebody who had, they had first experienced fandom in one fandom. He and his wife were in Beauty and the Beast fandom with Vincent and Catherine, the first one, not the second one. And he was introduced to this and as a sort of anthropology type person was like, I want to know how this happened and where, and he just went around interviewing people about filk, about fanfic, about conventions. And yes, a lot of it is out of date because it was done in 1993, something, or maybe 91. Anyway, it is of its time, but as a time capsule, it is invaluable. And he continues to teach amazing classes. I think it Berkeley, or it might be MIT. It's one or the other. He is another of our sort of resources that I I think people aren't always aware of because he was the first, but he's certainly not the last. Francesca Coppa just ended up publishing a book, I think this week or next week. It's coming out soon about fan fiction um, that I'm looking forward to reading because I know her and she contributed an essay to Chickstick Time Lords. And it's the world is roughly the size of a grapefruit with eight people in it, but in a good way. Speaking of living living in the the grapefruit research of, of, fan, of fan fiction, I don't know, uh, fan fictionology, I'm sure there's a word, but Tara- oh, I'm sure ACA fans have already, they are a, a species unto themselves. I'm sure they have their own lexicon. <laughs> but uh, Tara, where can people find you on the interwebs? Oh my goodness. I can be found on Twitter at Tara underscore O'Shea, no apostrophe. I can be found, my my actual design work that I get paid for that keeps my cat in the custom to which she, or the lifestyle she has become accustomed, can be found at fringe-element.net. And I may or may not publish on AO3 under the initials LJC, which were short for Lady Johanna Constantine which goes all the way back to my very first email account in 1992. So when I say I'm a fandom old, I am a gray-haired old lady, but I'm a really cool gray-haired old lady. And I am so excited to have spent time with this amazing gray-haired old lady who is, I consider just from your story, one of you know my favorite fandom mothers. So thank you so much. You're welcome so much. I had a lot of fun and I hope to do this. So you have a great day and please everyone, I hope you pick up the books. I'll definitely link some of these books in the chat. Um, Sorry, I will absolutely link some of these books in the show notes so you can read some of them, read definitely Tara's work, pick up her art and I will see you next time on Introspectional. Have a great day. (laughs) 